Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can learn more about our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so today on the show, I speak with Adam Ghazali. Adam is a neuroscientist, neurologist, inventor, author, photographer, entrepreneur, and investor. He obtained an MD and PhD in neuroscience at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. He is the founder and executive director of Neuroscape, a neuroscience center at the University of California, San Francisco. He is the co-founder of Achille Interactive, a digital medicine business combining scientific and clinical rigor with the ingenuity of the tech industry to reinvent medicine. He is the co-founder of Sensync, the world's first sensory immersion vessel, and he is the co-author of The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. Now, Adam and I explore the nature of human attention, our susceptibility to distraction, the impacts of technology on our ability to maintain sustained attention, the attention economy, the concept of multitasking, and practices for improving our cognitive function. So Adam is a lot of fun, and he presents these relatively complicated topics in a highly accessible manner. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adam Gazali. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. All right, welcome, Adam Ghazali, to the Commune Podcast. Thanks for making time. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, and congratulations to the newest member of the Kazali Brood. Oh, thank you so much. It's a strange time to have a child, but uh, it's been it's been quite a ride so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation, I, and I know there's there's a lot of topics we could explore, given um, that you're the exemplar model of a, of a Renaissance man, not not just in countenance, but also in in the things <laughs> that you actually do. Um, uh, from neuroscience to invention to photography, and, and I know you have a quite a prolific career as an entrepreneur and investor. Um, but I'd like to frame our conversation, knowing that it will diverge around the topic of human attention, um, which seems to emerge as as a prominent theme in a lot of your work. And uh, one of the things that I, that stood out to me um, as I got to know your work more and more, um, as you point out this sort of human ability or inability to have sustained a fo- focus on a task or a goal, that, that that's not a new challenge. Um, it's certainly one that is exacerbated by the current information age and uh, which has clearly kind of pulled the curtain back on the notion that uh, attention is a finite resource and the competition for that resource is fierce and underwrites numerous business models. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, and I'm certainly interested in the consequences of, of this kind of modern attention mining, both psychologically and also sociopolitically. I, I think there may be an interesting discussion to have around sort of the battle for attention and its relationship to misinformation and, and political radicalization. So maybe we can get there. Um, but while, you know, it's very enticing to jump in and just excoriate tech and social media when having a, a discussion on the nature of the modern distracted mind, um, maybe we could zoom out a little before that. And um, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed about your book, The, the Distracted Mind, was its ability to examine and dissect the component parts of distraction, which predates technology, the technology revolution. So you talk about goals and the human propensity to consistently create goals, kind of both modest and, and we're going to solve climate change, you know, and everything in between and our susceptibility to be distracted, even when attempting like the simplest goals of like getting a cup of milk from the refrigerator. So I wonder if you could just take a moment here at the beginning to unpack the idea of human goals and how they are often interfered with kind of both externally and internally. Great. Well, thanks uh, for, for that first question. It's one of my favorites to talk about because I agree it forms a, a foundation for a richer discussion about you know, the, the, the story of our times, you know, technology and the attention deficits and the cognition crisis, as I like to think about um, or frame it. But it is it, it should be grounded in an understanding about what our brains do at its very, at their very core. How did they evolve to be the brains that we have now? And I, I find that evolutionary perspective and that environmental perspective of thinking about the brain in the context of the world around us really helpful for all other discussions, even if that discussion is as you know complex as climate change. Uh, so to frame to ground it in that, I, I like to begin by um, starting at the beginning, you know, thinking about where our human brain that we have now, where did it come from? And it was really guided by survival pressures that you could even see on, you know, single cell organisms before there was even a nervous system. And essentially what the brain does is it allows us to interact with the environment around us to promote our survival. And it does it through really, um, you know, this, what we now think of as perception and action, right? We take in information and then we respond to the world around us appropriately. And that response may be one, once we have mobility to seek out nutrients, um, mates, things that help our survival, both of ourselves and our species, and also to avoid things that are toxic or threatening to us, predators and toxins. And, and that's in the, essentially what, what we do. You know, at, you know, most of what we do is that still, you know, and, and, and most of it is very reflexive and happens below the level of consciousness is that, you know, your body is always making these corrections and adjustments to put you in a better situation with the environment. Um, and some of it is, you know, these micro adjustments and some of them are big ones. And it, it's helpful to realize that that is the majority of what the brain does even today in, in modern humans. But what has occurred, which is fascinating throughout evolution of our brains, all brains, and especially the human brain, is that that reflexive process of receiving information and then responding to it 
which as I said, still occurs. Someone pricks you with a pin, you move your hand away. These reflexes are still there. But that reflex arc has been broken by this ability to create goals that may actually go against what the reflexive response would be. So you can interpret the information around you and then distill it, assess it, make a decision, have a goal, and then um, act non-reflexively. Like, I am not going to withdraw my hand from this hot surface because it, my goal is to not do that. And so that is really the the crux of, of sort of the you know, the amazing opportunities that humans have had to control their environment because we're not slaves to it reflexively. We get to make decisions and that has unlocked massive potentials to create language and technology and art and music and society in general, unlike other animals that don't have those very complex goal setting abilities. But with that has come also tremendous burden in that we are now somewhat detached from the environment compared to other animals and that we're not reflexively tied into these um, cycles that that exist um, throughout nature. And with goal setting and the ability to sort of have some control over our interactions with the environment comes uh, the potential for interference. And that's what you alluded to. And interference is a term that we use in many other domains. Like you can imagine tuning in your radio and getting interference and you're searching through the noise to find the signal. Well, that happens in our brains too. We have a goal and whether that goal is appropriate or not is a longer discussion and related to information processing and decision-making. That's a whole other area, but let's just say you have a goal and it's a worthy goal. Um, your ability to carry out the goal has many potential um, areas of interference that uh, that that derail it, and that can include external factors um, that you know move your attention independent of your goals. We call that bottom up, um, and they may be some really simple things like flashes and buzzes and and your name being called. So we're still very responsive to basic stimuli in the environment that are either very salient, like a flash of light or very, you know, or, you know, or very important to you, like your name. Um, and they may also be derailed your goals by internal noise. Uh, so, you know, these obsessive compulsive thoughts that you may have um, that could be either pathological, like in PTSD or OCD, or just, you know, these ruminations and mind wanderings that occur that also derail you from your goals. So this is the human story, right? We have this incredible potential to interpret the world around us um, in a non-reflexive way and reach decisions and set goals that are complex and interwoven with other goals and temporally delayed by decades. This is an amazing, I think, the pinnacle of the human mind. But it's also opened us up to a susceptibility to be disconnected from the environment and imagine ourselves as this sort of island, which I think has led to all sorts of negative outcomes, and also to have a lot of interference that leads to poor goal um, enactment. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very helpful to yeah, I think understand sort of the ground conditions from which we're working. And, and certainly, you know, I just just to kind of ground it in um in human experience. I mean, I I certainly wake up every day with certain short-term goals and long-term goals and um and you know, I've convinced myself 
perhaps foolishly that um, I can manage toggling between various goals, uh, which seems to be uh, kind of a more and more prevalent um, in modern day. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder if you could, uh, I guess, sort of address that sort of, I guess, this ancient tension between, you know, achieving goals that we set out for ourselves, but also there seems to be some sort of neural reward for, for, for following a new thought that mm-hmm. might actually have detrimental impacts on the achievement of that goal, but somehow we're wired to, to follow new information as it appears. And uh, that, that obviously blossoms in many ways in modern life, but I wonder if you could address that just for a minute. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's, it's one that um, I think people appreciate introspectively because they feel those pushes and pulls related to rewards. So people connect with this conversation, I find, um, unlike other headier ones that are more intellectual, more abstract. But reward is is something that's, you know, just part of our, you know, core to our everyday experience. And so people are really attuned to the fact that some things are more fun than other things. And and there is, you know, clues in our evolutionary past of why that is. And what you described is true. I, I always say that we're information seeking creatures. And there are, you know, there's a long history of really very um you know, very rigorous and telling neuroscience that shows, you know, that novelty really drives, you know, the dopamine system and the reward system. And you can imagine why that was rewarded uh, because it has survival advantage, the ability to be able to explore and to seek in your environment leads to the ability to find new resources and to, you know, to constantly stay up to date on what's happening in your environment. So there is a, there is a pressure to switch and to change. Now, I would say that that's not the only pressure because if it was, we'd be obviously just become increasingly more and more fragmented, in which case we would never accomplish anything. So there's also a pressure to exploit areas, right? Explore and exploit is the way that some people think about this and to buckle down and to really sustain in one task. So there, it's not like that is not rewarded at all. But some of the more dramatic rewards do drive this sort of seeking um, behavior and this switching behavior based on novelty. And I think in most real world environments, um, you know, before we had the technology that has complicated this so much right now, it, it there wouldn't be the situation that there's so much novelty constantly being bombarded. So there is the opportunity to be stimulated by novelty in the wild world, um, but then also have really boring periods where there is no novelty that you get to just be in the moment. Um, And so I, I feel like that is one of the shifts. The environment that we evolved in had long periods of lack of incredible novelty and new information. Uh, the environment that we're, our brains, our ancient brains are now in, has this um, unnatural uh, tendency to be bombarded by novelty. 
Yeah, sort of an increasingly lower tolerance for <laughs> for boredom. Um, I really enjoyed the analogy that that you made around foraging, and obviously coined the term kind of information foraging, but that it harkens back to an ancient time, or not that ancient for the squirrel outside my my window, um, who you know forages enough nuts in one tree until you know it becomes. Uh, slightly more or tempting and potentially, you know, more beneficial to switch, you know, to another tree because it has more nuts, even if there's some nuts left on, on that tree. So it, why don't you play this metaphor out a, a little bit and maybe take it into modernity, um, which might um, kind of parenthesize how humans seem to be consistently swinging from tree to tree sure yeah no i it's it was a fun uh, um sort of intellectual journey uh when writing the distracted mind to make this relationship between how humans forage for information and compare it to how animals forage for food and um the the field um, of behavioral ecology that has really done a lot of work in understanding this um, process, which is really one that has been assessed at a mathematical level of really trying to characterize um, mathematically how different animals interact with their food sources. And there's predator-prey relationships, um, but the ones that I was most interested in were um, animals that forage for food in what's known as patchy environments. And the, um, the treatment of that, um, that type of relationship was really um, formulated in uh, something known as the marginal value theorem. Yeah. And what it means to forage in a patchy environment, the squirrel in the tree is the example I use in the book. There's others, bears in a berry patch. And um, essentially, an animal is in a high um, food-rich environment that is separated from another one by some barren space. So like the distance to the next tree. And so that's known as the patch. And there's competing forces for an animal to remain in a patch versus leave a patch. And so essentially what's going on below their conscious decision-making is a cost-benefit analysis of how long do I stay here before I go to the next tree. And um, the mathematics of this and, and uh, the algorithms are really interesting. Um, it's beyond this, the subject of this conversation, but there's a whole um, host of information people could read about online. This has been then tested out in the field and in the laboratory, and, and it, it models really pretty well. And the factors on the the benefit side of remaining in a patch for a simple scenario of like an animal, a squirrel in a tree is really the diminishing returns of the resources being depleted. So when a squirrel first arrives at a full tree, um, there's lots of benefit. And then that benefit goes down over time uh, because they're eating nuts. And so there's less nuts in that tree. Now they will stay and eat every nut in that tree if the next tree is very inaccessible. So this is sort of the cost of getting to a ne the next tree. So it could be that it's very far away or the next tree is not very attractive, doesn't have a lot of nuts. And 
But if the next tree is close by and is full of nuts, then the squirrel will not finish the nuts because at some point there's a benefit to take the time to get to the next tree that is full of nuts rather than remaining in this tree that's now been depleted of nuts. And so this is the ratio that goes on. And it really describes the switching from one patch to another. And what I made is the analogy is that we also feed in patches, information patches. And that patch may be a article that you're reading. It may be a browser that's open. It may be a social media um, stream that you're following or Reddit article, whatever that patch is, it's rich of information. So it has all the nutrients that you want to consume. And at some point, you're going to leave it for another one. And so I was making that uh, analogy and trying to see if I could bring that um, formulation into modern day time, switch out food for information and think about the cost benefit ratio uh, and, and decision making that goes on usually subconsciously that decides whether we stay in an information patch or leave. So that's the transition. So in the modern way of thinking about it, where we're that squirrel and that tree is, let's say, an article that you're reading on online, um, there is the, the benefits of being there that are diminishing over time. So they diminish over time because you've read half the article and maybe the juicy parts were up front. So that's sort of like the tree is now being depleted of nuts. But in humans, there's actually other things that lead the benefit of remaining uh, that make it diminish. So we have this accumulation of boredom because we're in one task. We alluded to that a little earlier. We don't have the, the novelty factor um, as high as it was at the beginning. And we also have a bit of anxiety that seems to arise when you're, re when you're in one patch because you're thinking about, oh, what's going on in that other patch? And you know what's happening on Facebook now? And maybe I'm not being productive because I could be reading two articles at the same time. So I think that these factors are rather human factors. I don't think the squirrel has those as much, but it, I, I think it's still part of why being in one patch becomes less beneficial over time. You're decreasing the value itself by consuming it, and you have an accumulation of these very human factors that make you want to leave. Now let's talk about the cost of getting to the next patch. So that next patch might be another article or another website. Now, the tree is really close in modern times. That's really the point here. And that's the challenge and opportunity of modern technology, right? Now the tree is just a, a link in the article, right? It's like a nice blue highlighted line, you know, underlined piece of text that is the next tree. The next tree is just a tap or it's another tab in your browser or it's pulling out your phone on the side and going to Facebook. So the cost of getting to another information patch is super low. And so this is why I sort of propose that we switch so much is because we have these very strong forces that diminish the benefits of being in the patch we're in and the next patch is so close. And so we switch, 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 switch. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that is a, an example. I think almost anyone who has an internet connection is, uh, can relate to that they're in this little, kind of blue underlined piece of text is the entirety of the knowledge of humanity <laughs> one click away. Um, so tempting, yes. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it is so tempting. Um, and, you know, 
one of the things that causes me some concern is because it's so tempting, I, I think that there is a, a penchant to, uh, for media creators to create simpler and simpler and more and more condensed messages to the point where like the memification of, of the internet is, is pretty much upon us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and while, you know, I might be, you know, raise my hand to have a good laugh at, at a meme, I also think it's quite dangerous mm-hmm. that we've sort of memified public discourse mm-hmm. and that we don't have a lot of um, uh, many of these issues, sociopolitical issues that, are, are, that, that one might want information about are incredibly complicated and, and nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they might not even, you might not even be able to glean their true meaning in a hundred articles, mm-hmm. let alone, um, you know, reading just a headline or a, a meme that that might kind of mischaracterize, um, you know, the depth of of that issue. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I agree with that. I you know, I, I don't have much to add. Um, I think that many of us notice that. Um, I think it's especially true now for for children um, in that you know they're just getting smaller and smaller snippets that we've now sort of played into the own to to the challenge that we've created. So since we see this behavior, instead of saying, let's correct this behavior, let's start building the systems, both in our technology and in our minds that make us not switch as much, help us to sustain our attention on one singular task and focus. Instead of going that route, we've said, well, we have this really short attention span. Let's just give less and less information. And I think it has a a cascading effect, you know, of problems in terms of misinformation and shallowness of thinking. Um, You know, I think there is a, a pushback on it, like long format podcasts, like what we're doing are popular. Um, and it's like the opposite of it. It's people that are like, I just want a lot of depth and I have a long ride and I want to really get under the hood. And that's why we could talk about the marginal value theorem, which was almost impossible to put into, you know, a, a 30 second meme. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I like that, that there is at least a, a, a bit of a pushback on that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it seems like the detrimental effects of kind of modern technology with its incessant, you know, notifications and text messages and slacks and, and emails is, is quite obvious. Um, but maybe you could even just take a moment to really underscore sort of the price that we're paying. I mean, when we're clicking, when we have a task we're writing an article or we're doing something for work, putting together an important PowerPoint and we're then distracted and click out. I mean, what is the, the degradation uh, of, uh, in, our, um, in our ability to actually achieve our goals by, uh, by this kind of behavior? Yeah, there's there's so many ways to answer that question, which is why I wound up writing a book on it. Um, from from a personal perspective, not per, in my personal life, I have certainly a much as challenge with distraction as everyone else in that realm. But when I say personal, I mean from from where I've done my own research in my laboratory. Um, we focused on the consequences of that type of switching, distraction, and multitasking 
on memory and perceptual decision making. And it's quite profound. Um, it's not subtle. It exists across everyone. It gets worse as we get older. Um, there is an inability of our minds to hold information at the same high level of resolution when there are distracting elements. And I, by distractions, what I mean is information that you are actually trying to ignore. Um, it's not that you're multitasking. It's that you're like, oh, I'm in a noisy restaurant or there's chatter going on around me or I have a busy visual space in front of me and I actually don't want to attend to it. I want to filter it and I want to attend. Even under those circumstances, there's a degradation of your processing of what your goals are on. And when you make the decision to actually try to multitask, there's even further degradation. And we've seen that with functional brain imaging, both MRI and EEG. And it's, um, it's just a limitation of how our brains work. And we see that it degrades both short-term memory, um, perceptual decisions that you make, and even long-term memory is affected by this. So that is, the, that is the contribution that I have made through my own research and my team to the scientific literature. But in, in the distracted mind, what I did was say, okay, now I'm going to reach to other people's research and try to tell the bigger story. And the story is sort of as big as it gets. Almost everything that you can imagine, there is some evidence out there that there are negative consequences to by this type of behavior. So um, when it comes to performance um, at work, which you know is different than what I was talking about, which is the true like cognitive measures in a laboratory, but that has been uh, well documented that even though people think multitasking is helping productivity, it actually diminishes it. You see it in children, whether it's their school performance or their studying at home. Um, it's been shown on relationships and human-human interaction and empathy. It's been shown to have negative effects from a safety perspective. I mean, the most obvious being texting and driving, but many, many others. Um, negative impacts on sleep. If your goal is to sleep, that's a task in itself. And it by fragmenting that with parallel uh, processing other tasks, it, it leads to negative effects on that. Um, so on and on, um, wherever you look, this seems to be a negative um, consequence of fragmenting our attention in this way. Mm. Yeah. And maybe you could also just take a moment to address multitasking since you did bring it up. And certainly there's this, uh, I think, a popular perception that this is something that we can and should do uh, in the achievement of kind of parallel goals. And, and maybe just, you know, as a neuroscientist, you know, help us to understand what the nature of multitasking and parallel processing are. Yeah, yeah. It, it, a lot of it is complicated by terminology. And you just use two terms there that I want to unpack a little bit because they don't necessarily mean the same thing. So from a behavioral perspective, we multitask all the time. We, we're like, okay, I am going to... Um, do the laundry and make lunch. And and that's fine because you're not really parallel processing them, right? You're like, I'm going to throw the laundry in, then I'm going to make my sandwich, then I'm going to go back to the dry. You're switching. and But it is a form of multitasking because over a period of time, you got two tasks done. The, the higher 
level challenge would be, I am going to actually parallel process these tasks. Now, that's a different type of multitasking. And it's really attractive if that's possible, right? Because then you're really getting two for the price of one, right? Like that's what we ask our computers to do, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, is literally parallel process information to accomplish two tasks in one at one time over the same amount of time. Um, and so often when we try to multitask, we might not be aware of whether we're trying to parallel process or switch. Switching is not so bad, although what we find is switching does also lead to degradations of performance, especially if it's very like making lunch and doing the laundry, you know, doesn't demand that much depth of thought. But if what you're trying to do is write an article and, you know, read a book, you know, these are both demanding intellectually absorbing activities that you will suffer decrement by multitasking by switching. So now let's move to the other type of multitasking, like literally parallel processing, taking in the information simultaneously. This we just really can't do. Um, if you, if they are attention demanding, you might try to parallel process, but you will not be able to do that. And you will be switching whether you're aware of it or not. Usually you are aware of it. So for example, the example I love, because probably everyone has tried this, is if you're on a call, it could be a personal call or a conference call, and you're trying to engage in the call, but you also decide to do your email at the same time, right? Because you know, I've let's, never done that. Never done that. <laughs> let, let's say this is the pre-Zoom world before COVID, when we actually had calls without video, and you're like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get something else done at the same time. You know, you can't do it. Like you just feel it. Like you were like, oh, maybe I shouldn't send this email until I get to read it when I'm not also having a conversation. Or you realize that you had to ask someone in the conversation to repeat themselves, and you feel really bad because you realize it's not what they said didn't make sense. It's that you really were not listening to them. So if you're introspective at all, you realize that you cannot parallel process those things, that they're both going to suffer diminished um, performance by splitting them in that way. Hmm. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of this stems from a feeling of time scarcity that we all seem to have right now that because there's not enough time to do things, we want to take on simultaneous goals, but the performance of those goals or the performance in, in pursuit of those goals is, is so poor that it, we'd probably be better off if we actually single tasked and then took a, a separate cadence. Would that be your recommendation? Yeah, I, I think that that's what we're wrapping our heads around now. And there's lots of reasons why we try to do that. One is that there's this feeling of time scarcity. The other is, like I said, the anxiety of like, you know, not being ultimately productive or that you're missing out on something else that's important or interesting. And then there's just the boredom that accumulates that people that do not practice single tasking feel boredom when they do single task and, and, and they have not built the systems to tolerate that boredom. And so these are, there are many forces that drive people to do it. But in the end, I would say the recommendation based upon my read of the literature and my own research is that for things that are really important, that demand your attention, that you want to do with quality, that have um, a time signature stamp on them that really need to be done um, in a certain amount of time, it's better to single task it and, and learn how to be a better single tasker and accomplish that. Yeah. 
Yeah, agreed. That's something easier, I suppose, to say than to put into practice as uh, as someone who has to write 2,500 words to publish every Sunday. And I find myself writing two sentences at a time and then off I go. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're right. Like, wow, I think it, I think it is hard to put it into practice. And, and it's, um, it's like everything that you want to do, especially if you've developed habits around multitasking and, and engaging in technology in what I would view as an unhealthy way, it's even harder to do. And just like in anything else, whether it's your consumption of food that's unhealthy, um, if it's your consumption of information that's unhealthy, it takes patience, practice, and a strategy to develop new habits uh, that are going to allow you to consume in a better way. Performance Kitchen is creating the next generation of frozen food, combining great taste, whole food, nutrition, and convenience. Performance Kitchen meals feature 100% grass-fed beef and lamb, antibiotic-free pork and chicken, wild-caught fish, plant-forward options, and reduced sodium and sugar. It is Performance Kitchen's mission to change the way we eat by making remarkable frozen meals that are truly nutritious and taste delicious. Performance Kitchen works with a team of chefs, doctors, and registered dietitians to develop a variety of frozen ready-made entrees with real wholesome ingredients inspired by the Mediterranean diet. Their meals are prepared in small batches and flash frozen to lock in both flavor and nutrition. Crafted is Performance Kitchen's premium small batch line featuring handcrafted frozen meals that are created by chefs and registered dietitians and approved with targeted nutrition solutions for a variety of eating needs, including plant-based, keto, low FODMAP, maternity health, renal diet, nitrate-free, AIP, Whole30, and more. Use Commune20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Go to performancekitchen.com. I want to touch on some of those practices that can help us with, with sustained attention. But there is one hypothesis that I've been really dying to ask a neuroscientist. And, um, uh, and it's a little bit off course, I think, from, from at least the stuff that, that I've read. But I'm certain that you've thought about it because anyone <laughs> who's alive right now, I think, is... is and curious is thinking about these things. And, and I'll, I'll sort of subtitle this hypothesis that with the battle for attention led to the siege of the Capitol. Okay. <laughs> Just to lay it out as a headline first and then back my way into it. Sure. So, and it would take like a second to set yeah, up no, I'm happy. this theory. Yes. So increasingly there is, obviously tremendous competition for our attention. I mean, there's a whole economy around it. And the economic business models of some of the biggest companies in the world are sort of grounded in this battle for, for our attention. So YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. And these business models themselves depend on maximizing watch time, essentially like keeping you on the platform for as long as possible with the goal of, of serving you up the most ads over that time and, and generating revenue from those ads. So 
and this is stuff that I'm sure you probably know Tristan Harris and, yeah, and his work. Sure so this is very much tied into that. So to increase watch times, companies are effectuating sort of myriad strategies and, and techniques from autoplay to recommendations to algorithms that serve you up content that it knows that you're interested in. And it seems increasingly apparent that watch times tend to go up and people have an, a penchant to highly engage and interact with content that is particularly sensational and extreme, irrespective of whether or not that content has any basis in fact or, or truth. And so, you know, obviously we, we hear a lot about the weaponization of, of, of misinformation and its spread um, through social media. So, so there is a neural reward it's seemingly neural reward happening with people that then are increasingly ingesting this content. And, you know, they may click on, you know, an alternative doctor. And then because the algorithm wants to serve people up kind of imperceptibly over time, more and more extreme content, all of a sudden you're getting videos that, that COVID is a hoax, and then all of a sudden there's a global cabal of pedophiles, you know, trying to instantiate a new world order. <laughs> and, but I mean, it's funny, but then I look at like, you know, 18 to 20% of the American populace now believes in some sort of adjacent QAnon theory. So it, it, it does become concerning. And, you know, so there is a, there, there seems to be some sort of neural reward associated with the ingesting of that content. So that's, is we just earmark that one question. Mm -hmm. And then, but beyond just these sort of uh, uh, neural benefits from ingesting, people also seem to be almost addicted to becoming vectors for the propagation of that material because it is so sensational in its nature that it generates all sorts of likes and comments and followers to the degree that then people are, are, are become addicted to that, that dopamine flowing down the sort of neural reward pathway that then in sort of a, a BF Skinner way, like it reinforces that behavior. So, and it's like, if you play that scenario out and if this hypothesis sort of holds any uh, weight, you know, that you can see how this battle for attention leads to radicalization <laughs> politically that, you know, has, I think, you know, really uh, characterizes the, or has fed the, the polarization, political polarization, and, and I guess in the most extreme case, getting back to my <laughs> sort of uh, whimsical title, even at the thinnest edge of the branch, um, you know, the siege of the Capitol um, to the point where people who had left the siege, the protesters posted videos of themselves in the Capitol without any concern that they might, that those, that that mm -hmm. might have been used against them just because they were so caught up in the, in the psycho in the reward um of posting that content. So 
Anyways, I'll stop there because I know that that was kind of a circuitous mouthful. No, but, uh, I follow from a, from a neuroscientist point of view, you know, what's happening here with, you know, how is this quest for attention contributing to this seeming collective delusion that we're having? I, I mean, I, th- I think your description was, was really well articulated and, and, and I agree with it for the most part. I don't think it's all of what contributes to it. And I'm not just talking about politics, but I think even when it comes to cognition, and I want to elaborate on that. But first, I want to just reflect on the attention aspect. And I, I think it's true. I mean, the, the fragmentation of our attention has myriad consequences, which we just described. I would say that this is also one of them, um, that you are your attention is being captured by things that are very novel, very dramatic. Um, you know, humans are storytellers in a, in a big part, both receivers of stories and tellers of stories. It's been part of our history from the very beginning. It's how we, we learn language and music and all of these things. So it's also very core to us. And a lot of this, I think, is about storytelling. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, being the, the, the recipient of the story and also being the storyteller, I think, is a lot of this. But, you know, it's very much about attention and, and, and you know, it, it's one thing if if you tell your story and you don't know if there's anyone listening and there's another, if you could see the likes as they accumulate, and then it does give that reinforcement, uh, the social reinforcement and, and reward. So I think attention fragmentation and how media has supported it through, you know, what, what you're referring to this attention economy as it's been referred to and, um, it, and how it's just so accessible, you know, just returning to the fact that it's in your pocket and you could you could reach for it whenever you want at any time of the night. And that is all, I think, aggravators of what we've witnessed in terms of conspiracy theory and in terms of just misinformation and anti-scientific thinking in general. Um, but I, although attention is my my thing, right? It's, it's what most of my research is on. I, you know, it's what I write about and talk about the most. I don't think it's just about attention. Um, and I wrote a follow-up to the distracted mind where, uh, where I started broadening out this discussion. I call it, I called it the cognition crisis. Um, it's, it's available online, freely online. It's, you know, not as long as a book. It's like a couple book chapters, I would say. And, um, and what I talk about there is that, Yes, attention is fragmented and, you know, the, I think it doesn't, I think if anything, we see it more and more since I wrote that book, you know, today, but I would say that our entire framework of how we interact with the world, our cognition abilities broadly defined is lacking and deficient and, and, and leads to problems like you just were discussing and other problems. And by cognition, in this case, I'm, I'm including attention, but also expanding it to memory and perception and imagination, creativity, uh, decision-making, analytical decision-making, empathy, compassion. We are lacking in all of these things, and we have not prioritized them and really tried to elevate and evolve them. Um, and because they're all lacking, when your attention is fragmented and you're taking in noisy, low-quality, low-signal information, you don't have the proper analytical skills to make decisions about it and to evaluate it. You don't have the rich um, empathy and compassion to 
have perspectives about it outside of your own world. And it's these type of other deficits that we are facing as a species that leads to the type of problems that you're talking about and others. For example, um, climate change, right? And the other crisis that's going on right now, the the pandemic, right? Like if you were just like an alien species uh, visiting, you know, an alien visiting our world and looking at, at how humans are dealing with these crises, you'd not be very impressed, right? Like <laughs> there's some really, really bad decision-making going on. And I, so I think that in order for us to manage other complex time-delayed crises or even immediate crises, we need to have better minds. We need to have elevated cognition, better ability to sustain attention, make decisions that affect others in a future time other than ourselves. We are not there. And we have not really put this up there with other pressing global priorities. If you look through like the UN's list of world problems and the World Health Organization, and there's many of these lists of like global grand challenges. I don't see in those lists enhancing human cognition, but it should be front and center because if we cannot elevate how we think, we will not effectively deal with any of these other crises that we've been discussing. Mm, yeah. Beautifully put and inspiring. I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, in many ways, what you describe is sort of the problem behind a lot of the other problems, you know, and these yes. are the things that we often don't address. As my friend uh, Marianne Williamson often says, she we're focused on watering the leaves and not the roots um, or taking a more functional medicine approach to to our problems where you're actually trying to get at the root cause and address the root cause because a, a lot of our uh, problems seem almost now epistemological on one side um, and then almost uh, I guess I'd categorize it as spiritual on the other side I mean things like virtues and qualities like empathy and compassion you know bringing loving kindness to the presence of suffering these ideas that are at some level core to what we are as humans and what separates us um you know we seem to have a, a, an increasingly distant relationship with, with some of these so uh, i'm curious if you can point us and i don't and you can take obviously the conversation any direction you want but you know if you can point us you know potentially to some solutions mm -hmm. um or practices that we can mm -hmm. at least begin to in engage in both personally and potentially communally to address some of these deficiencies. Yeah, you know, it, these are thorny problems. And, you know, step one is recognizing them. It's not enough. Um, you may know that you have a problem with smoking cigarettes, but it doesn't mean that you're going to solve it. But not knowing you have a problem is certainly a guarantee that you're not going to solve it. So, you know, having conversations like these, being introspective about how you think, about how you make decisions, about how you interact with technology um, and uh, other people are, I think, a starting point. And, and, um, and you could do a lot with with it um, on your own, talking to other people that you trust, whether they're professional therapists or or trusted friends and people that you could really open up to and, and start 
really paying attention to your behaviors, because one of the ways of managing this, not the only way, um, is to modify behavior. Um, how we behave really has a large impact on our health and and the world around us. Um, so one thing, and we could dive into how you do, how you do that. I'm not like a self help expert, but I certainly have spent a lot of time thinking about my own behaviors. Is to modify your behavior. Um, the other thing is to modify your brain, to actually strengthen the processing um, capabilities of of your mind, and to make it a stronger engine and, and ability to uh, perceive the world and to act in the world in a in a more effective and kinder uh, uh, and happier way. And so I, I don't think that they're the same things. You could change your behavior without really changing your cognition in that way. And you could change your cognitive abilities and then never use them in an effective or meaningful way also. So I, I tend to think of behavior and cognition separately in that sense. Of course, they interact. But um, I, I think that when you're when you're trying to find a solution to something as deeply rooted as as the cognition crisis or the distracted mind, two terms that I use in, in, in different contexts, um, changing your behavior and changing your brain are the two approaches that I like to think about. Um, so that, that's sort of how I organize it. Maybe to get a little bit more concrete, less abstract, um, changing your behavior, you know, first step, observing your behavior, realizing that it needs to be changed, right? If you don't want to change your behavior and don't understand your behavior, then it's just going to be not possible, I think. Um, but once you are a good observer of yourself and you also reach the decision that how you're behaving is not the way you want to, that you want to focus your attention on one thing, that you want to think more clearly, that you want to have richer empathy for others, then you're on the path, uh, the long path of, of you know, self-improvement and, and all the things that that involves. Um, one of them, you know, uh, that experts in this, I am, I am not, a, like I said, a self-help expert, is the construction of new habits. Breaking habits and forming new habits is something that when I listen to others talk about behavioral change, I think really is makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it, it and when you start trying to change your own behaviors, you realize how hard it is to change any habit that you have. Um, and but once you get a new habit, it's also in there. So I think it's sort of habit switching, taking your behaviors and, and building those new constructs is a big part of that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It is almost taking what it would might be categorized as voluntary behavior and practicing it such that it becomes reflexive. Undoubtedly. Um, um, I, uh, I wrote an article recently, and this sounds a little Pollyanna, so you can get your didgeridoo out at any moment, but um, that, that I was going to actually try to actually live from a place of love mm -hmm. more of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and for me that that really does require quite a bit of effort, <laughs> um, and I you know I have to sort of I have to engage in a meditation practice such that sort of this kind of love not as a, a transitory emotion sort of arising and subsiding in consciousness on a moment by moment basis, but more as a state of of being. Mm -hmm. um, that that emerges 
kind of from the absence of need mm-hmm. and, and kind of in the emptiness that meditation can provide such that it sort of infuses my normal human everyday experience <laughs> with some kind of like love perfume. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but it's, a, it's, like it's, it's a, it's a practice, but I find that, you know, I'm sort of, that was my new year's resolution uh, amongst uh, other more modest ones. And, um, and, uh, and I find that it, it does slowly and imperceptibly work. If you can, if you can dedicate yourself to, to the practice. One of the things that I found very interesting about your work is that um, you're not necessarily recommending uh, that we all, you know, become luddites um, mm-hmm. to ad- to address, uh, you know, the, the world of distraction. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your work in relationship with technology and specifically video games mm-hmm. and, and how one can actually become more mindful <laughs> by playing a video game. Yeah, no, I love this transition. It's always a, a complicated one. Um, it's why I, I don't do like 10 minute pieces anymore because, <laughs> you know, it's it, to some, it, it's like almost like this cognitive dissonance and trying to like work through how I could be saying we need to be less distracted. And I also am a video game developer as a neuroscientist. And, <laughs> um, and so it needs unpacking. And, you know, I, I do stand by our conversation that technology has challenged our brains in very fundamental ways and more and mo- more than we've even talked about here. But um, I don't believe that makes technology bad. I don't believe that it should be demonized for that. Um, everything has, you know, yin yang, right? Everything cuts both ways, right? Exercising is great. Training for a marathon has health benefits, but it also could destroy your knees, right? And food, good, bad, drugs, good, bad. Like it's, it's just the way it is. And technology has good and bad and social media is amazing in some ways. Like as we talked about at the beginning of this, I just had a, a daughter and now my, my elementary school friends, I haven't seen in 40 years, Tell me that she's beautiful and they're so happy I'm doing well. And it's amazing that that can happen. Amazing, <laughs> mind boggling. So I, I really don't like the you know whole idea of demonization and, and throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Technology is incredible in its opportunity to connect us and give us information. And, um, and you know, it's a way more nuanced story than it's just good or bad. And so what I've become devoted to um, from a research perspective, but also, as you mentioned, I've done a lot in, in business and startup formation, uh, entrepreneurship and investing and helping other companies, is to think about how do we build technology, often from scratch, you know, starting from like, okay, let's, you know, obviously not fully scratch, you're building on on the technology basis that exists, but let's start and say, we want to create technology with the goal of actually enhancing what makes us human and not diminish us. That's our goal. You know, sure, we want to be a successful business and make money and all those things. And those aren't bad goals, but it's not our only goal. We want to actually really think about technology, uh, information technology, more than an entertainment, more than communication and knowledge building. Those things are fine. Um, many people are focusing on them. But how can we use this amazing technology, the processing power, 
you know, future facing technologies like virtual reality and artificial intelligence and robotics, um, the incredible accessibility of technology, mobile technology like phones and tablets and internet connectivity around the world. How do we leverage all those things to improve our brain function? That's really the question that I've been asking myself for over a decade now. And there's an amazing potential here that is really untapped, really just beginning to be. And, you know, I think I've contributed to it through Neuroscape, which is my research center at UCSF and Achille Interactive, Sync, Jazz. These are some, some um, entities that I've created to help this goal with, with, found, with co-founders. But there are many people around the world that are doing this now. And we're still really at our infancy, I would say, in realizing the promise of technology to be cognition-enhancing tools, broadly defined, as I just described, mood, empathy, decision-making, attention. Um, and that's what I am just passionate about. I, I love stories that have both sides and the villain becomes the hero. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really attractive to me to find the path of technology that helps a lot of these problems that that it's aggravating yeah sure i mean it wouldn't be great just to be the recipient of a hundred gold pieces for every compassionate act (laughs) that you might uh, um, uh, not to necessarily make compassion in another not to commodify it further right right Uh, um uh yeah so uh, this is kind of last thought and question for you um and it sort of pertains to um to meditation and uh and mindfulness and you know i think that there's been uh a lot of talk particularly kind of in in the silicon valley world about this sort of emergence of of mindfulness and meditation in the last 10 years or something and you know, it's it's sort of remarkable that this technology, quote unquote, that was developed, you know, twenty five hundred or three thousand years ago, you know, by someone sort of walking through the the landscape of Nepal, seems to be now underwritten by science and an increase in a in a growing body of evidence to support the fact that engaging in in these cognitive enhancement practices like meditation um, actually has physiological impacts uh, in your brain um, and not just psychological. But one of the things that I've found that has been sort of like unnerving to me, and I wonder how you feel about it, is that kind of meditation seems to be packaged in a way now of like, it's all about like optimal performance and we're going to take the monk and we're going to put functional MRI on him and we're going to get all that data so we can train our, our, our Navy SEALs to be better fighters or our football players to be better football players or our corporate executives to be more, you know, productive at work. And, and in a way, you know, this constant sort of demystifying uh, of these practices seem to sort of contribute to some of the same problems that we already have. And, um, and I've been thinking a lot about it. like maybe what these things need are more of a remystification of like, <laughs> hey, what about you know 
the notion that the self is illusory or, or that, you know, we're all connected, dude, or whatever. Um, so I wonder how you've seen it, because I, I know that you're involved in a lot of different companies and, um, and you've made, obviously, tremendous, important contributions, I think, to, to, to this field. Um, you know, how do you think about sort of the kind of, uh, I don't know, marketing or commodification of, of practices that are meant to sort of enhance human experience and make us happier, but are sometimes being used uh, for purposes that maybe are just kind of perpetuating mm -hmm. kind of some of the problems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, I, I, I guess I, I see both sides. Like, as a scientist and as, you know, a, a technology creator myself, you know, understanding what's under the hood of meditation, what what does it mean in terms of the neuroscience? How might it be delivered more effectively to people that find it inaccessible, like children that you just can't get to do these practices or people that don't have the context of, you know, Buddhist schools of thought and other elements that put it into a bigger picture, you know, part of, part of what I'm attracted to is, is making it more accessible and more digestible to people and more understandable from a science perspective. So we could continue to improve the practices and even invent new practices is some of the work I've done with uh, Jack Cornfield, who's a leader in this space. And we've worked closely together for, you know, over half a decade now in trying to take you know, his insights into contemplative practices and mindfulness and meditation and integrate it with what I've learned in closed loop technologies and neuroscience. And um, I think that we've created some really um, exciting um, tools and we have two papers out now on, on, a, on a game we have called Metatrain that have been published, uh, three papers, and another one that's in, in um, preparation right now showing benefits on children with um, attention deficits and adverse life events, showing that this type of digital meditation practice um, helps improve their attention and even their behaviors and, and some school performance. And we could document this in randomized controlled trials. So part of me thinks there's a lot of benefits for the scientific exploration of mindfulness and meditation and the use of technology as a tool to understand and deliver it. That being said, it all is about context, right? Having new tools doesn't mean that they're going to be used wisely or even for good purposes. You know, I'm not saying that it's nefarious what companies are, might be trying to do, but it may not be it may not be given the context that it should be given in order to have more benefits beyond improved productivity at work. So I agree. I think that there's something wonderful with meditation and mindfulness practices that extends beyond sustained attention, which can be turned into productivity, but can really have benefits that encompass a lot of the larger domain of cognition we're talking about in terms of stress and mood regulation, feeling, loving kindness, empathy, compassion, promoting the development of wisdom. So it's not that I think it's bad that it's happening, but if it doesn't, um, if it doesn't, if it's not presented with the right context, it may not achieve its ultimate potential of all the benefits it could have. So that that's more how I, I think about it. It's not bad, 
but it may not be the ultimate of what it can do. Yeah, yeah. So last thing, as a new dad, do you, uh, uh, how are you analyzing yourself from a neurological perspective and how you're dealing with this situation? I mean, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm, I'm 52 now, so not um, not the normal age that someone becomes a new dad. I have a, a beautiful da- daughter now named Eloin, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to understand how uh, weird uh, being a dad is um, in general in the context of a uh, sh- shelter in place, shut quarantine in, in, in San Francisco and a global pandemic. So I feel like it's a bit of weird within weird. And, you know, I can't always disambiguate them. But yeah, I think I, I spend a lot of time um, observing my behaviors always and trying to understand my brain and watch it interface with this creature that I've created that I seem to love so deeply, even though I don't know (laughs) very well, nor does she seem to know me, which actually bothers me, even though I understand why I want her to know me. Um, And so, yeah, I do spend a lot of time uh, not just thinking about my own neuroscience, but of course, the um, irresistible charm of developmental neuroscience and watching every day a new feature come online which is just so wonderful to see but yeah it's great thank you for listening to my conversation with adam ghazali to keep up on adam's work visit ghazali.com And you're welcome to email me directly at any time at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every missive. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.